A row between the European Union and AstraZeneca is deepening as Brussels looks for answers over delays in the supply of the pharmaceutical company's coronavirus vaccine to EU member states. Marty Barron, the executive editor of the Washington Post, has announced he is retiring at the end of next month. We'll look back at a storied career in newspapers. And the Pompidou Centre in Paris is to close for four years for a major renovation. We'll assess the complicated task of revamping a building that has roiled Parisians' passions since it opened in 1977. Monocle's editors are here to discuss those stories today on the Late Edition here on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the Late Edition here on Monocle 24. It is Wednesday the 27th of January and I'm Thomas Lewis. And joining us today from Midori House in London are Monocle's culture editor Chiara Romella and Monocle's news editor Chris Chermak. Chris, Chiara, great to have you with us on the show today. Uh, We are in the middle of another week. How are things shaping up for you both there in London? Chris, let's start with you. Ah, uh, shaping up all right. Thank you very much, Thomas. We're we're sort of in the middle of production of the March magazine of Monocle, so that's taking up a fair amount of our time. Otherwise, I feel like personally, you know, after Biden's inauguration and, and everything that was happening in the U.S. over the last few weeks, it's sort of this week to, to take a bit of a breath, isn't it? And, and sort of just slowly evaluate the, you know, everything that's been happening under the Biden administration, but just kind of both take stock and just think about what the next few years are going to look like. As a culture editor, I think when in countries like the UK, there is a strict lockdown, I feel like people's expectation is just that I would be able to provide information and advice on any possible TV series out there ever in the world, so that I am supposed to have watched all of the series that all people are watching like at all at the same time. It's quite interesting because I can always detect this sign of real disappointment when I admit to the fact that maybe I've only managed to watch the one series over the weekend as opposed to each and every single one of them that, that, that my colleagues have been watching. So, you know... It's busy times for a cinema and TV reviewer, what can I say? (laughs) Well, I'm also in the market, actually, Kiara, not to add to your plate, but maybe we'll get to some uh, requests and recommendations before the end of the programme. Kiara Romella and Chris Chermak, great to have you both on the programme today. Well, let's begin today's programme with the row between the European Union and AstraZeneca, which appears to be deepening after the EU demanded that the coronavirus vaccine producer publish details of its deals to supply the vaccine the rollout of which has been slowed by delays in production. Some member states, including Germany, have previously suggested that vaccine doses destined for export to so-called third countries outside the EU's borders could be halted, while Italy is among those governments who have threatened to sue AstraZeneca over the delays. Well, earlier today, we spoke to Darren McCaffrey, the political editor at Euronews, who explained the EU's argument for us. They argue for transparency reasons that vaccines that are manufactured in the European Union, that the pharmaceutical companies need to give notification of precisely what's manufactured, how many and where it's going to if they are going to leave the EU. Now, the Germans have gone somewhat further, suggesting that if they're not getting their so-called fair share of the vaccines, that they may well blockade those vaccines from leaving the EU altogether to ensure that European unions proportionally don't lose out. Now, this wouldn't have an impact, for example, for the UK when it comes to the AstraZeneca 
vaccine because it is manufactured in the UK, but it would have an impact on the Pfizer vaccine, which is produced in Belgium. Now, clearly, it would be pretty dramatic stuff for the EU to start to do this. Many would accuse the European Union of prompting vaccine wars or vaccine nationalism, something one would have thought the EU itself would accuse others of if they were to do it. Darren McCaffrey there speaking to us a little earlier today. Uh, Chris, there were reports a little earlier today that AstraZeneca had walked away from a meeting with the EU as the tensions here over the situation continue to grow. The company's now clarified that it is willing to sit down with representatives of the EU. What's the latest that you can tell us and that you've been monitoring of the story from Midori House in London? I'd flip it a little bit to say... This is an incredibly important moment for the European Union. And the reason they're under so much pressure right now is because this was a rare case where the European Union took on the negotiating of vaccines for all of the member states, essentially. So this And this was a rare trust, if you will, that was placed in the European Union by the 27 member states to say, okay, you negotiate on our behalf with the pharmaceutical companies, you get us the vaccines that we want. The idea, of course, was that they would be stronger united, that they would be able to get a better deal, that the pharmaceutical companies would not be able to sort of pick them off one by one and sort of charge more in that sense. So on the face of it, having the EU be the key negotiator was a strength. It was bringing an entire economic bloc together Uh, to bear on these pharmaceutical companies in these negotiations. And in that sense, matching up with China, the U.S., uh, Britain, for that matter, uh, you know, all these sort of big power players that were all negotiating with these companies. So to put it simply, if they screwed this up, if they uh, were were too cautious in their negotiations um, with AstraZeneca, and if it does come out that really it's more the fault of the EU and its negotiators than of AstraZeneca, that presents a big problem for the EU's future and uh, the power that they will have in this kind of circumstance going forward. So that's really the background for all these arguments uh, that I would say and these sort of pushes from countries to put the pressure on AstraZeneca and also to push for this transparency to see, you know, in, in that sense, quite simply, who, who is at fault and what does it mean? And Kiara, to turn focus to the UK for a moment, which marked a grim milestone in the pandemic yesterday when more than 100,000 people were reported to have succumbed to the virus in Britain. That is one of the highest death tolls in the world at this stage of the pandemic. Is the UK today focusing on that, or do you say, in the news coverage, in sort of discussions more broadly, rather than this extraordinary argument, as as Chris outlined so well for us there, that's unfolding regarding the distribution of the vaccine in Europe? Well, I would say if you take a look at today's newspapers here in the UK, I took a glance at the Times just as I was coming down into the studio. Uh, That is the headline on the newspapers, you know, the 100,000 deaths, the faces of the people who have died. And you'd probably expect it to be like that because ultimately the vaccine rollout is actually one of the few things that the UK can say is going quite well at the moment. You know, in the UK, around 10% of the population has been vaccinated by now. That's against 2% in the EU. 
And, you know, because of all the conversation that we were having around the spat, yes, because Britain is getting its its share of, of doses that it expects, it has been able to go ahead at a much higher pace uh, than uh, what the EU has been able to do. Uh, you know, um, Boris Johnson himself said yesterday, we've been able to do things differently, better <laughs> in some occasions. And... That has got to do with the fact that they have been able to do this negotiation separately. I think it's interesting that right now, for example, the conversation today around COVID-related news here in the UK has got more to do with when schools will be will be reopening, when hotel quarantine, um, and what countries will arriving from which countries will require a, an enforced quarantine in the in a, in a hotel. Right now, coming into the UK, um, the criticism that is moved towards Johnson at the moment, coming in particular from the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, has got more to do with, I guess, the historical failings of the Johnson government. So we're going back to the delays in enforcing lockdowns. I guess disarray surrounding test and trace, uh, I guess the delays in securing PPE. These are all things that are not new issues, but they are kind of long-standing failings of this government. And uh, despite, you know, Johnson saying that when he, I guess, had to comment on the figure of the 100,000 deaths, he did say that um, he took full responsibility for the actions until that point. And I mean, it's hard to look at that and wonder what does that actually mean and whether he still stands by the decisions that were taken or not. And that's why I think a lot of his, you know, communications at the moment revolve around this idea of, you know, getting the vaccination done quickly and looking to the future because it's it looks much better for him to look forward and to a vaccination plan that's going quite well and definitely faster than most other countries than to look backwards. Well, for more on many of the themes Chris and Chiara discussed there, you can read today's column in the Monocle Minute, which is by our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. You can find that and subscribe to our daily news bulletin via monocle.com forward slash minute. Well, next here on the late edition, Marty Barron, the executive editor of the Washington Post, has announced that he is to retire at the end of next month after eight years at the helm. Uh, Chris, in some of the reaction I've read uh, following Marty Barron's announcement that he is to retire, they're pretty superlative, the tributes to him, some places describing him as perhaps one of the last great newspaper editors in the US. Are those kind of effusive characterizations are those ones that you would agree with broadly about uh, Marty Barron's career? Well, I think if you look at uh, his career as a journalist, there's there's a lot there. You know, he was uh, particularly uh, actually even, you know, uh, represented in movies because he led a groundbreaking, a groundbreaking investigation uh, while he was at the Boston Globe. Uh, about the Catholic Church uh, that was, for example, that was actually put into a movie uh, where he was called Spotlight from 2015, where he was played by the actor Lee Schreiber. So he's he's been uh, in some ways almost, you know, through that uh, a cult figure as well as an old school journalist in the U.S., um, but what I would say is I think it's interesting that the the timing of when he took over the Washington Post um, in 2012, he's really been at the helm for a dramatic time for U.S. media. And so in some ways, 
it's it's almost hard to separate his achievements at the post from what is happening around him in the sense that, you know, he presided over this massive expansion of the Washington Post uh, from what I was reading, uh, about 580 journalists when he joined to about 1,000 journalists today. But that was also, you know, in against the backdrop of the election of Donald Trump and the polarization of the media in the United States. And one of the strange things that really has happened in the U.S. through this polarization um, of the media um, and of the population, for that matter, is that, you know, it, it's led a group like the Washington Post to really sort of self-identify itself uh, almost, I don't want to say maybe opposition is too strong, but certainly Defender, as it's called, you know, it, it introduced under him this uh, tagline, democracy dies in darkness just a few months after the inauguration of Donald Trump. And so it really took this kind of stand that enhanced, that that grew its readership among uh, uh, centrist opponents of Donald Trump, if you will, whether that was the left or also uh, the center, I would argue, uh, of U.S. politics. And at the same time, you know, in that sense, uh, arguably alienated uh, conservatives, but then conservatives went to other outlets that also gained in readership as a result. So in that sense, you know, he's really, he was at the Post at a time that was very unique in in the American media landscape. And for me, in that sense, it's interesting that he is now resigning because I think uh, these next few years are going to be quite fascinating to watch the Washington Post and the New York Times and some of these other legacy media outlets to see where their reporting, uh, where their identity, if you will, kind of goes from here in uh, in the Joe Biden administration. You know, a little a little anecdote uh, to, to finish on that for me uh, personally. I remember right at the early in 2016, speaking to a relatively apolitical conservative uh, voter in the U.S. And she, in this case, she was looking at the New York Times in that summer. And I remember her talking about the fact that she would look at a daily summary of the New York Times and eight out of the 10 stories on it were against Donald Trump, were something negative about what he had done. And this led her to decide, well, this is a biased media outlet. It doesn't fit my leanings. It can't be that bad. And she unsubscribed from the New York Times. Um, And that really stuck with me because it was just this question that I had, this moment of wondering, well... You know, what was it? Was the New York Times in those days really that biased? And you have this challenge at the same time, though, of let's say that objectively eight of 10 things in those days were actually bad that Donald Trump had done. <laughs> um, do you report it in that way that gives you the this, this appearance of bias? Uh, and the same in that sense was true of the Washington Post. This ran on through the last four years, arguably, that there was this perception of anyone who was a Trump supporter, certainly, of conservatives, that they had this, you know, complete bias against Donald Trump. Perhaps that was right. Perhaps objectively he did a lot of things wrong. Nevertheless, it was very hard to uh, maintain trust among the entire population um, as a result. Now, at the time where Marty Barron is leaving, you're kind of in this opposite situation where, uh, for one thing, you can flip that on its head and all of a sudden you might have eight out of 10 stories uh, suddenly being positive 
about Joe Biden because uh, media like the Washington Post are, uh, you know, uh, happy and relieved about the return to normalcy that we now have and so are reporting about the administration in a different way. Will that attract readers in the same way? Will that maintain uh, this this feeling, this positive feeling that that uh, that liberals have, for that matter, about about uh, the Washington Post? Um, I think that's still a hard thing to say. Will they continue to read, or will they kind of go back to being more apolitical now that Donald Trump is out of office? So uh, the reason, I guess, is I say, as much as Marty Barron has done a lot. Uh, for the Washington Post and steered it through a difficult time. There's so much outside of of uh, of his tenure that I think is really worth mentioning when you look back at his legacy. And Kiara, to put that question to you then that Chris posed there, this idea of how legacy media outlets in the US find their voice now, if it isn't, as as Chris suggested there, purely in opposition, uh, I'm being broad brush here, but purely in opposition to, to the Trump presidency. What kind of voice do these newspapers try and carve now? And as Chris asked, is there an allure there that you think there's likely to be with readers who have sort of flocked to many of these news outlets in greater numbers during the Trump presidency? We shouldn't forget that either. What kind of voice do you think many of these newspapers now will be looking to carve for themselves as a new administration begins? Well, I think the question is, and the issue is that we need to even take a step back further from what their specific editorial voice will be and what the content will be because as you rightly mentioned there I think that there is the bigger question of the fact that they have essentially really grown their readership and increased their subscriptions really quite significantly um, partly as a response to Donald Trump's continuous attacks on anything that wasn't completely aligned with him as fake news. So this idea of rebuilding trust in legacy media, I don't know if it would have happened quite at the same speed had Donald Trump not really taken it into the spotlight. I think that there was already a large movement of people reassessing their relationship with legacy media because of what then became their relationship with social media and the information that they were getting out of social media. This is not just a Trump thing, but I think Trump really put it firmly in the spotlight and it really encouraged a lot of people, not just towards the New York Times and the Washington Post, but also to other kind of outlets that perhaps they felt reflected more their leanings and their idea of truth. And, I, you know, I would also ask myself at this point, because I think a lot of us have ended up getting our news from outlets that do reflect our point of view and we have created this world that's called, of, that's often, you know, um, nicknamed of eco chambers, echo chambers. What will happen to those outlets that were really backing Donald Trump? You know, um, you know, obviously Fox News is going to uh, uh, White House press conferences now and they've become the ones kind of asking the uncomfortable questions. Quite rightly so, you know. I mean, I've watched some of the questions that Peter Ducey from Fox News is asking Biden and I think it's good <laughs> to have some kind of opposition in those conferences as well because otherwise, you know, as kind of Jen Psaki, the new press secretary, um, has set this very kind of 
you know, respectful and and, and normal tone. And so you were you, you might have been under the impression that from now on, you know, press conferences will just be completely boring and absolutely non-confrontational and everybody will just be happy and asking nice questions. That's not the case. That won't be the case because reporters will continue doing their job. Um, but to go back to, you know, the idea of those networks that Trump really took up towards the end of his presidency, you know, the Newsmaxes, One American News, what will happen to these outlets? Because they gained incredible traction just because Trump continuously referred back to them. That he took questions from them. He continuously retweeted their, um, their, their opinions. Will these kind of ultra-conservative networks maintain some degree of relevancy with the people who have, you know, become entrenched in these eco chambers, or will they lose relevancy once Trump is gone? You know, there is there there was a huge shakeup in the U.S. media landscape over the last four years, and I think we will generally have to see how many of these players maintain the readership that they have gained through Trump's antics, responding either pro or against it, and how many people will just go back to a certain level of kind of disillusionment and disinterest once things get a little bit more normal again. Well, finally here on the late edition, the Pompidou Centre in Paris, one of the city's most notable cultural attractions, is to close for a major refurbishment, which is expected to take four years or so, according to France's culture ministry. Well, a little earlier, we spoke to the journalist Agnès Poirier, who talked to us about the love-hate relationship many Parisians have with the Pompidou building, an inside-out architectural testament to the future, designed by Richard Rogers and Renzo Piano, which opened in 1970. It's true. It's one of the most beautiful places to see Paris. But I love the building itself because, you know, there's something, of course, very joyful, very energetic, very colourful about this place that is unique and takes us back to the late 70s. But not only, there's something quite a renaissance about it because I think that's really what was so uh, attractive to uh, President Pompidou is that they didn't try to cover the whole space. There's a big piazza. So in a way, it's a palace, the Pompidou Centre, and there's a huge piazza, as in the Renaissance. And there's an interaction between the people and the visitors and I think that's how it works uh, so well and you know it was a success story from the beginning. Agnes Poirier speaking to us a little earlier today. Kiara, success story from the beginning as Agnes put it there. How welcome a revamp therefore is this would you say this announcement that the refurbishment is about to begin? Well, aside from the architectural merits, I guess, of looking after something that has been really quite defining for the city of Paris, not everyone loved it from the onset, but I think it's undisputable that it has now become a truly, you know, an architectural, you know, important milestone for, for the city. I think most importantly, and quite, I guess, you know, it's not something that we can really discuss, is the fact that this 200 million euro renovation is being carried out for reasons of, I guess, safety, accessibility, also to remove asbestos, you know, from the from the structure. So it's not really something that you can wait too long to do. It's re-looking at the heating and cooling systems. So it's not just aesthetic. It's not just a little bit of prim kind of retouching. It's structural work that will ensure that the building is set to, you know, remain 
and to continue having this legacy moving forward. It's very important that we look at buildings and buildings of the past as things that can be repaired as well, you know, uh, out of the many things that perhaps we have gotten used to, you know, get rid of or perhaps just completely, you know, forget about trying to improve. There is also architectural projects. And as much as this is obviously a very costly intervention, I welcome the fact that there is no resignation to just close down the building because there is asbestos for eternity or um, just to give up on maintaining it because I think it's an important thing to do for this particular kind of landmark building, but in general as well. I do think the relationship uh, between a city and its structures, a population and its structures, is is certainly an important one. But as Chiara talked about there, sometimes you kind of grow to to, to identify with and to love uh, a structure uh, in your city. You know, I mean, a couple of examples for me that I was just thinking about uh, when we were, uh, you know, preparing preparing to talk about this. One that struck me, although as a relative newcomer to London, was the Barbican Centre and being uh, taken around that um, on a cycle ride during lockdown, actually. So I've never really experienced it as an as an open uh, venue. But it was really, you know, this quite uh, striking example of, of another place that also needs maintenance work is actually due to get about £10 million worth of, of maintenance work. At some point, um, you know, and it is this sort of interesting, fascinating, but 1980s structure that has become something of a fixture in London. I will say my other my other example that I'd end with uh, from another place that I've lived many years is Berlin, where I think, uh, you know, I found it also very interesting because Berlin, perhaps unlike a Paris, has gone through so many changes. And so they're kind of maybe not the opposite, but I think Berlin is an interesting case of a population that has had to deal with constant changes to the way that the city looks and the buildings that are represented in it. And the most, you know, current example of that is the Humboldt Forum and the rebuilding of the Berlin Palace uh, from the Prussian era, this 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 piece of land in the middle of the city where the, the old palace had been torn down, the old then GDR parliament was built in its place, that was torn down after the fall of the Berlin Wall, now you have this strange modern slash uh, old style uh, mishmash almost between the old Berlin Palace and a new cultural institution. That's going to take quite some getting used to, I think, for the population uh, in Berlin as well. But in the same way, perhaps as the Pompidou Center, uh, you wonder in 10, 20, 30 years, once it's really just a mainstay of Berlin, you imagine it will be treated very differently than it is today. Well, Chris Chermak and Chiara Romella, both at Midori House in London for us. That's all we have time for today's programme. A big thank you to the two of you for being with us today. Thank you too to Sam Impey, who edited today's programme in London. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow, but do be sure to join the Globalist team live from London from 7am London time to begin your day. I'm Thomas Lewis. Thank you very much for listening and I hope you're keeping well. (laughs) 